0: All this month, we're asking you to tell a friend about a podcast they'll love. Right now, think of a friend, your mom, anyone you care about. What podcast, other than Achievement Oriented, would they really love? Got it? Now do it. Tell them about it in real life or on social media. Send them a message on your OmniTool. If they don't know how to download podcasts, show them how. And tell us what you recommended with the hashtag tripod. That's Ypod. Thanks for spreading the word. Hello and welcome to Achievement Oriented, the Ringer's official gaming podcast. My name is Ben Lindbergh and I'm a writer for theRinger.com. And on the other line, wearing the dead eyed stare that can only come from being a Mass Effect Andromeda character or from listening to Mass Effect Andromeda's dialogue, oh, no. to my colleague, Jason Concepcion. Hi, Jason.
1: Wah, wah, wah.
0: <laughs> as you just said to me before we started recording, yeah. it's not that it's bad, I right. just hate everything about it
1: <laughs> yes, that is uh that is true i mean it's not it's not a bad game, yeah, but every detail about the game could be improved in some way, <laughs> yes,
0: <laughs> and we will lay out exactly what those ways are in just a second later in this episode. We're going to talk to Patrick Markey and Christopher Ferguson about their new book, Moral Combat, Why the War on Violent Video Games is Wrong. But first, we have to inflict some verbal violence on a video game, I'm afraid. And you and I have done a dialogue about this game for The Ringer, so... You can go read our thoughts there, but we're going to share them now. So as promised, we've been playing Mass Effect Andromeda. We've been playing the PS4 version. We haven't finished it yet because who could ever possibly finish (laughs) a video game in 2017 when a new good one comes out every week that's 60 hours long. But we've gotten far enough into it that I think we have grasped the structure and the problems. So... Do you want to lay out the backstory here and the premise of this game for anyone who hasn't played the Mass Effect trilogy as we have?
1: Sure. Uh, this is a a completely new story from the previous trilogy. And gosh, what is it about that second trilogy that 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 <laughs> that, that, that second sci-fi trilogy that that players yeah. have have problems <laughs> with? So you play as. Either a male or a female captain rider, who is kind of like your new shepherd allegory. Mm-hmm. And it, it's basically a space colonization game now. You've been sent out to Andromeda, to f- a golden planet, to uh, lead 200,000 souls to you know this new planet that you're going to inhabit. But when you get there, the long-range scans were faulty. There's something wrong with the planet. Now you have to figure mm-hmm. out what. And various things happen. It, that I don't really want to spoil um mm-hmm. but that's basically what it is you need to explore this planet find out what written wrong there's a, an alien race the cat that's kind of opposing you you don't know what necessarily what their goals are but you need to find out and so in the course of exploring this planet um you know romance your subordinates as usual and various mm-hmm. adventures uh, take place
0: yeah so the idea is that this is a reboot this is gonna be a new kind of mass effect it's no importing from previous saves right. this is completely different it's a new protagonist a new ship a new galaxy but it's really not that new right. it's basically mass effect at least in its structure and there. Massif-
1: and mass effect one you know like yeah. really the feeling of mass effect one where you can see the promise but also it's a highly imperfect game and you're not really sure what it's going to end up being
0: Right. And that's strange because in video games, often sequels get more refined as they go. I wrote about this a little bit in our dialogue, but we don't really have the same apprehension about sequels in video games that we do about, say, movies, because I think historically they haven't been as story and writing dependent and so when you find a gameplay formula that works you can recycle it over and over and tweak it and make it look prettier but it's still fun and we'll still keep coming back for more and maybe that's changing now that a lot of games have raised the bar for story and mass effect played a part in that but now the same old mass effect i don't think has the same impact as it did when it first came out and the bar has been raised by a lot of indie games a lot of recent big budget games so this game has a tough assignment because not only does it have to measure up to mass effects legacy we really like mass effect it has to be as good as those games or better and it also has to be as good or better than the games we've played recently which are really really good i came to this game Directly from Breath of the Wild, <laughs> came to that directly from Horizon Zero Dawn. Those are both fantastic games that really do everything Andromeda does better than Andromeda does them. So it's a tough assignment. And that's probably part of what's affecting my reaction to this game, but definitely not all of it.
1: Yeah. Should we talk about specific things that, that we don't sure. like about it? I would say the first, obviously, the most famous. The most infamous thing right now it would be uh, the animations not just the facial animations which uh, certain loud segments of the video game playing world are taking way too much of an interest <laughs> in but the animations really feel clunky there's it's there's a choppiness to them there they'll be um there's a thing you'll see when you kind of trigger a cutscene or a dialogue scene where the your npcs will kind of like teleport into the the last few feet or a few meters into the into the animation Mm -hmm. um this is the first mass effect game on the frostbite engine you know Mm -hmm. whatever that means uh (laughs) (laughs) but but one could imagine that you know creating a whole new game on a whole new set of tools where you have to create the tools create the systems that create the game from Mm -hmm. scratch would create obstacles and Mm -hmm. you know the overall effect is is just that it Feels not quite finished graphically, and you know I don't even like, like even even the camera angle that follows you, yeah, feels too wide in it, like mm-hmm. so that there's things that happen in the distance and you can bear, and sometimes you can't, you really can't pick them out. It's just yeah, it feels you know.
0: And during a lot of the in-engine cutscenes, yeah. you can control the camera, but it will. Default to a certain view that often is just way off, like your character will be in a corner of the screen or you won't even see who you're talking to. And then you'll remember, oh, I can move the camera around. But there's no real reason to need to do that, except that often the action isn't centered in the frame. There are a lot of little things like that. and that hurts the game because this is a series that's pretty dependent on storytelling and liking the characters that you spend all this time with and reading tons of text and going deep into dialogue trees and when the characters aren't emoting at all or aren't emoting appropriately and the performances the, the vocal performances don't match the faces and The faces are just scary and inhuman to begin with. It's just, it kind of takes away from any emotional resonance that would be there. And I'm not sure how much of it would be there anyway, because the writing is just noticeably weaker than it was. And I think we've both been trying to review our memories and... Wonder whether because we were younger when we played those games or because gaming wasn't as sophisticated when we played those games were the originals not really as great as we remember is the difference not so stark but really is I think from from what I can tell there are just a lot of lines that will make you cringe in this game
1: yeah but i went back and i watched a bunch of um mass effect 2 and mass effect 3 gameplay just Mm -hmm. to kind of like get a sense of am i overthinking this is it just me the problem with the dialogue and the writing it happens on several levels one there are corny lines that happen there's one Mm -hmm. thing there's a battle early on where you're fighting the cat for really for the first time. And they they have these, this isn't much of a spoiler, but they have these kind of like alien uh, creatures, four legged animals that, that help them Mm -hmm. that cloak themselves. And one of the, one of the, you know, space colonists you're with is like, are those dogs? It's like, we're, (laughs) you know, we're on the far flung (laughs) corner of the galaxy. You're a hard, you're, you know, you know, like you're a hard bitten space Marine. Yeah. These aren't dogs. Like, what are you, talking about um <laughs> and so there's that and then there's there's also uh the problem that you, you touched on with this kind of like um, emotional and tonal responses that don't sync with what the emotional tenor of the scene is or what the prompt is like mm-hmm. i wrote about this a little bit in the thing that, that you come across one of the dialogue um, that you can get into on your on the home like the space base the arc is with a very distraught alien woman mm-hmm. and you know like the way the tones of writers' responses are like okay, sure mm-hmm. you know it's like <laughs> this weird flippancy to uh, that doesn't match this kind of like the desperation of the scene and that happens quite a bit and then there's there'll be like lines that are repeated a lot and mm-hmm. kind of like in in the flow of play it's just uh, not great for a game that historically has been based on dialogue
0: yeah and the landscapes and the vistas i think they'd look good in a vacuum no pun intended i think that it suffers somewhat from comparisons to games i just played because nothing at least on a console looks better technically than horizon zero dawn and nothing really looks better artistically than breath of the wild and andromeda falls short in both of those areas it's it's a good looking game i think but it doesn't blow me away The way that those games do if there were an easy snapshot taking mechanic in this game, I don't think I'd be using it. So that's part of the problem. But I think the bigger problem is that I just don't get the sense of discovery that I'm supposed to get from this game. This is a game about traveling to a new galaxy, a wild, distant galaxy. And you're the pathfinder and you're supposed to explore and set foot on these worlds that no one has ever set foot on before. And it just... Doesn't give me any of the same sense of discovery that I get, even from going to Nintendo's new Hyrule. It's just, there's a lot of hand-holding. I mean, I think there's more exploring than there was in previous Mass Effect games. There are definitely bigger outdoor areas, but everything is gated in some way. There are walls and barriers. You can't just go wherever you want, and there's always an arrow pointing you to your next objective there's never really a question about what you should do or where you should go and so most of the aliens return from the old mass effect games there are a couple new species that just kind of look like the old ones so it just doesn't feel like a different place that i am the first to settle i just don't get that exhilarating sense of discovery and adventure that some games give you, even though that's supposed to be the premise of Andromeda.
1: Well, I think the one thing that I think we both agree on that really hampers the feeling of exploration is the scanning mechanic, which, oh, is, yes. um, which is crucial to acquiring resources and minerals and things for mm-hmm. uh, crafting and for ranking up and research and development. So what it is, is is you have this kind of wrist held device that you can use to scan objects mm-hmm. to find out if they contain anything useful. The problem being there's no visual cue at all mm-hmm. about what you can scan and what you can't. And, and you can scan everything. I've scanned rocks and they've been useful, and I've scanned like this, you know, kind of like abandoned uh, shipping container, and it's been useful. And then other times it hasn't been. You can scan machinery, alien machinery. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it's useful, sometimes it isn't. But there's there's no rhyme or reason, and there's no. You know, gamism glowing thing. There's no pop like pop-up alert that you might get on your wrist thing. Like, oh, I sense uh, that there's you know the computer senses that there might be something useful in the air. There's none of that. So what happens? What ends up happening is you scan everything. You're constantly scanning everything with your scanner up, which slows you down. It slows your movement down, and it's just it's just so annoying.
0: Yeah. There's there's one scene where you land on a pretty picturesque alien world. And if you take out your scanner, the aliens you meet tell you to put it away because they don't trust you. Right. And so for this one scene, you can't use the scanner and it's so liberating. I just had to look around and not have to worry about scanning any vaguely technological looking thing. So. I agree about that. And also just the menus and the user interface. Again, I'm comparing to Horizons, which I thought worked really well and was very streamlined and I didn't mind the crafting or anything. And in Mass Effect, it's just really hard to tell if a certain weapon is going to be better than the one you have or if they're all just divided into tiers and and affiliations like there's a remnant tree of weapons and there's a milky way tree and an andromeda tree and it's just so convoluted and it takes so much time to navigate to anything you want to get to and like any bioware game this is just so stuffed with side quests it feels like overkill at times almost every npc you meet it seems like gives you some sort of task that is often fairly repetitive and good luck keeping track of all those things because they're just like it it's just it's so difficult compared to again horizon which just divides everything into like priority tasks right. or, you know, side missions or just chores. And you can easily see everything that's active and how important it is. And in Mass Effect, it's all just sort of piled into this folder inside another folder. <laughs> and there's just so much like clicking from screen to screen that that just adds to the length, which is already ridiculous.
1: Yeah. Well, games are too long as we keep saying <laughs> to each other. Um <laughs> Another example of just like the small details that just make that make you scratch your head about this game. Your Mako, which drives actually Mm -hmm. quite well. Yes. um, It's you hit triangle to get into the Mako, but it's circle to get out of it, which (laughs) is like what? So like and so when you're in the Mako, if you hit triangle and you hold it, you basically evacuate back to space, uh, Mm -hmm. back to your ship. Which I did the first, like, a couple times because it's like, why do you make the button to get in and out of your vehicle different? I don't, that doesn't make any sense to me, but they did do that. Um, and those are just little things that are like, why? You know, like, that you figure a, a game of this lineage from a from a studio of this kind of renown, they would catch that. And also, mm-hmm. like, you know, when you refill, there's ammo boxes kind of scattered around the world. Mm-hmm. You just kind of walk onto them to to replenish your ammo, but... And then there's a very, very small text box that says ammo refilled and it disappears yeah. like in a half a second. So if you don't mm-hmm. see it, you don't know. And there's no, your controller doesn't shake. There's no sound. There's like no feedback other than this very, very, very small text saying ammo refilled that disappears mm-hmm. like very fast Yeah, that you've refilled your ammo. And these, these, these little feelings compound to create a feeling of just a game that's unfinished. It feels very unfinished.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I didn't mind that so much because I'm just sick of pressing buttons to interact with things. And it was kind of nice just to walk in the vicinity of something and have it work. And, and we should say, while we're saying vaguely complimentary things that the combat is better. We good. enjoy the combat. Combat It does sacrifice some ability to manipulate your squad mates, but it gives you the ability to allocate your skill points across different classes so you can invest in biotic abilities and also be a shooter essentially and i like that there's a new jetpack which adds some verticality to the encounter so the combat thus far is i think my favorite thing about the game and That's maybe not the best sign with the Mass Effect (laughs) game, which have (laughs) depended on action to varying degrees, but have always been largely story driven. And here it's more the combat that's keeping me going.
1: Yep. Uh, I agree. You know, at any time that uh, you can put me in control of a character that has essentially Jedi powers, I'm into it. yeah, the combat is just as good as as the kind of polished th- stuff that was in Mass Effect 3, particularly. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily play Mass Effect to fight people, yeah. but I'm happy that that's good. Yeah,
0: right. And there are some other nice little touches. Like, I do like that the... Dialogue options don't always divide up neatly into the good guy response and the bad guy response, the the paragon and the renegade. They're often four options, and yeah. it's not totally clear what the morally right answer is, and you're not going to ruin your relationship with someone based on one response. So I like that. It, I'd like it more if the dialogue were better, but still a nice touch, I suppose, and I don't know. You've pointed out that it feels unfinished and it does in a lot of ways. And it shouldn't because it's been in development for five years, which I don't know, maybe that's just not long enough to make a game this huge anymore with the level of quality that people expect. Or maybe as we touched on on the site, there's just been a lot of brain drain from Bioware. And this is the first Mass Effect game since the company's last remaining co-founders left since mass effects creator and project direct director left since uh, I guess it's the, the second mass effect since the lead writer of the first two games left, although he has since returned to work on star Wars stuff and the game even lost a lead writer and a senior developer during development. So there've just been a lot of people, emigrating from BioWare for one reason or another. There's been an exodus and maybe that's because the company is kind of a victim of its own success and everyone wants to get the people who were responsible for BioWare's past successes working on their own games. Like the lead writer who left during this game's development went to Bungie to work on Destiny 2, which I'm sure could use some help in the story department too. So that's a a problem. And as you mentioned, there's a new engine too. So having to deal with a new engine and a new creative team and essentially a new trilogy all in one game is a lot to ask and it shows.
1: Yeah. And it's the the first game created by Bioware Montreal rather instead of Mm -hmm. Bioware Edmonton. Although, you know, in the past... Montreal and some of the other studios have been involved. Um, it's the first time Montreal has has the creative lead, and that's because Edmonton's working on some unnamed other project. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's just a lot of change behind the scenes, and I think you combine that with a new console generation, with a new uh, story, with new characters. It's just, I, it's just too much churn overall. And I think, in that sense, probably BioWare should be lauded for for creating a game that's that's as good as it is. I mean, that, you know, we really, I think we, it's, it might've been too big an ask really to considering all the changes that have gone on with this company and with the development arc behind the scenes to think that, you know, they just come up with this world crushing AAA, you know, ancestor to a, one of the greatest uh, series of all time. I think we just, we probably expected a little bit too much from them. Mm -hmm. And I think
0: we're both planning to finish it. It's not so bad that we're just going to stop. And It's a good game. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's partly just because we're fans of the franchise and I feel almost obligated to see where it goes just because of all the time I've invested in this series. But I'm having enough fun to keep going and i'm curious to see if it improves in any way and so if you haven't played the previous mass effect games well don't don't start with this one i guess but if you haven't or if you haven't just come off of zelda and horizon zero done maybe you'd have a more positive reaction than we did or if your expectations were lower coming in because there are things to like here and it's definitely a lot of content if you're just looking for something that's going to occupy you for a while andromeda will definitely do that but for us it just doesn't live up to the past precedent of the series and of recent AAA titles and so ultimately we're disappointed
1: yes unfortunately sad to say
0: yep All right. Well, we will take a quick break and we'll be back with Patrick Markey and Christopher Ferguson to talk about moral combat. Do you love books but find that you never have time to read them, perhaps because you're playing 80-hour RPGs that aren't that good? With Audible, you can get audiobooks and listen to those books you've been meaning to read on the go. Their app is free and works on iPhones, iPad, Android, and Windows Phone. You can also download and listen on your Kindle Fire, and over 500 MP3 players. People still use MP3 players, apparently. With Audible, you own your books, so you can access them anytime and anywhere, right from your smartphone, and Audible also has the Great Listen Guarantee. If you decide you don't like the book you chose, no worries. You can exchange Any book you aren't happy with for another title Anytime, no questions asked It's quite a policy Borderline Library. I'm sure you can find our next guest book, Moral Combat, on Audible. I also just recently read one of our former guest's books, Simon Parkin, Death by Video Game. Enjoyed that quite a bit. I'm also reading How to Talk About Video Games, now that that's something I do, by Ian Bogust. When I'm not playing video games, I'm reading about them. So if you're traveling, travel delays are wasting your time. Buckle up, settle in, let the new ideas take off. If you're doing chores, if you're out for a walk, if you're actually exercising, all ideal Audible situations. You can't make more time, but you can make the most of it. So Turn your dead air into something more with a free trial at Audible. Go to audible.com/achievement to start now. That's audible.com/achievement. All right, we are joined now by the authors of Moral Combat, Why the War on Violent Video Games is Wrong, a new book that came out this week. And it's written by Dr. Patrick Markey, who is a professor of psychology and the director of the Interpersonal Research Laboratory at Villanova University, as well as Dr. Christopher Ferguson, who's an associate professor of psychology and department chair at Stetson University. They are both among the leading researchers into the effects of violent video games or the lack of effects of violent video games. Hi, guys. Hi, Patrick. Thank you. Just so you know, Jason and I just came from playing and discussing a violent video game. So take whatever precautions (laughs) you deem necessary to ensure your own safety. Okay. Uh, these are
2: aggressive questions, we'll know why. (laughs) So
0: you chronicle the whole history of violence in video games and the response to it in the book. And what becomes clear, I think, is that it's just so easy to... Jump to conclusions and be biased in either direction, really, when it comes to this subject. And if you haven't played a video game, if you haven't had personal experience, it's easy to be swayed by a media report that distorts facts and you you might think it's convincing oh it's a murder simulator if you haven't had that personal experience and if you have say in my case I've been playing violent video games all my life and as far as I know I'm not violent so it's easy to come to the opposite conclusion but that's all anecdotal how do you try to do rigorous research on this topic and what are some of the Pitfalls that prior researchers have fallen into when coming to one conclusion or another.
3: Yeah, that's a it's a big question, and I'm sure Chris and I will both have different uh, parts uh, of it to say. Um, How research has been done in the past is, I mean, the research I find most interesting are is either research done in laboratories or research done looking at crime data and things of that sort. And so, laboratory research is nice because we can, if done correctly, we can control things, we can make causal inferences the drawback of laboratory research, if it's done correctly, even if it's done correctly, is that the question is what we find in the lab, does that generalize to what most people are really worried about, real acts of violence. Mm-hmm. And so when we go out into the real world and we look at things like crime statistics and relate to game sales and popularity, in that world, we have a great outcome, the outcome that we care most about, predicting school shootings, predicting aggression, predicting homicides. But of course, we always have issues with causal references. And so it's really always kind of the balance of these two research worlds. And I'm sure, as Chris will tell you soon, that in the laboratory, there tends to be lots of pitfalls of what researchers have done uh, in the past.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think, you know, one of the things that's interesting you know, to look at is, of course, that, you know, there's, there's a lot of data now to suggest that kind of like people's perceptions of video games tend to be kind of generation specific, you know, kind of older adults tend to be a lot more. Suspicious about video games than than younger adults do, and, and that's true for the people that have done research in this field as, as well as anybody else. So there kind of was this sort of you know cadre or cohort of older scholars, you know, who who are interested in this topic and perhaps concerned, you know, about the effect of video games on kids, but in many cases didn't really seem to know a lot about games themselves. So there were, there were a lot of studies, like in, in terms of like talking about the pitfalls of some of the experiments out there a lot of ex- experiments would do things like compare a game like Call of Duty or one of the Black Ops games versus Tetris, you know, for instance. And, you know, sure, you know, one is violent and one is not. And, you know, kind of when I like talk about these studies to gamers, almost immediately I can see the eyes rolling and the, oh, my God, I can't believe people are doing this because to a gamer, obviously those games differ in so many different ways other than just whether they have violent content or not that it would really be hard to attribute any behavioral differences you saw, even if they were real, to something, you know, specific like, like, like violent content. So we see a lot of pitfalls like that, you know, games that are just mismatched, and, you know, they differ in ways other than violent content. We see problems with the aggression measures. So a lot of them are what's called unstandardized. It's a little bit inside baseball, but, you know, it really kind of means that, you know, researchers can pick and choose outcomes that best fit their hypotheses and ignore outcomes that don't fit what they would like to see. And this has been a problem throughout psychology, so this is not something that's specific to video games, but, but, you know, but these are definitely things that have been shown to, you know, in, in studies, increase the likelihood of finding some spurious effects. So making conclusions, linking video games to problems, problem behaviors that seem to be due to some of the pitfalls of the studies or perhaps even the researchers' expectancies about what they should have seen rather than anything that's actually going on in the, in the real world.
0: And you mentioned the generational gap in perception of violent video games or any video games for that matter. And in the book, you lump it in, I think, fairly with a lot of other forms of media or fashion or entertainment in this sort of cyclical moral panic effect where – things will get blown out of proportion and demonized and then enough time will pass that they'll just become adopted and normal and people will forget that anyone ever worried about them so given that just waiting might be the best solution to this sort of <laughs> outrage what are some of the the negatives or the risks why is it worth fighting back against the perception that violent video games have all these harmful side effects if the real solution and the lasting solution is probably just to wait until enough time <laughs> has passed for these things to become normal.
3: One of the unique elements, and as you point out, like right, at one point people worried about comic books or about Elvis Presley. and these tended right. to be short-lived panics. I mean, even music for a while was a pretty short-lived panic. With video games, though, I mean, the earliest study we could find on video games was done in the early '80s, and it was done on the violent video game Missile Command on the Atari 2600. Actually, at that time, that's what they called the a violent video game. Promoting and nuclear so, war. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the most violent video game, perhaps. Right? <laughs> um, but what's happened though? So this has been, you know, three decades ago that this happened, and so what the reason why video games stay with us is because technology is constantly evolving. So it's not like when Elvis Presley came out, that was pretty much it. But with video games, the graphics have gotten more realistic, right? Now we have virtual reality. And so it not, might not fade away as quickly as we think. It, in fact, it hasn't already. It's already gone on three decades. And so I think the notion that if we just sit back and wait, it has gotten better, right? As generations growing up with the media have adopted it. But what we tend to find is whatever the newest, latest is, the next generation that's adopted it, the older one tends to fear it. So I wouldn't be surprised if virtual reality is going to be our next big moral panic in this. And so and whatever comes after that's going to be the next thing. And so even though we might not be worried about missile camp command anymore, in the future, there's going to be some other media, interactive media that you, that we're all going to be worried about, that we're going to be worried about our children simply because it's different than what we're used to.
2: Yeah, I think it's, you know, as we say, time heals all wounds and we just kind of need to wait for the old people to die. And, you know, but, <laughs> but, but I think it's also important to point out that at least in, in, in the case of like some of the issues that are going on, yeah, you know, it's it's probably not a huge deal, but at least there's you know some areas where even you know kids today, some kids may be disadvantaged or or may actually see some harms, maybe minor harms that come from some of the video game you know moral panic. So you know, for instance, you know a lot of kids today use games to socialize, or they may use games to reduce stress. You know, after they're having a bad day at school uh, or whatever else, and you know if if you have some parents who are you know, who don't know much about games, you know, who see only Fox News or CNN clips of the, you know, the worst of Grand Theft Auto Five or that kind of thing and just, you know, sort of overreact to sort of snatch these games away. Uh, or they're concerned about addiction and things like that, even though their kid's not really addicted um You may actually see some cases in where you 're really kind of like taking away a kid's support system uh you removing their ability to socialize with friends online uh or reduce stress or things like that, or even just causing un, you know unneeded arguments between parents and kids over something that 's a relatively minor issue
1: you You talk a lot about in this book about the different moral panics, media panics that have come up with Call of Duty games, the No Russian level, famous No Russian level, different things like Grand Theft Auto. This is kind of like a non-scientific question, but is do you foresee a point at which games become so realistic, so immersive that the violence depicted there could desensitize people to violence or affect them in some kind of adverse way?
2: It it seems to be that you know from the data we have. I mean, that's always a a fair question. I mean, obviously we need to treat you know each form of media differently. You know, you have to start all over again. You know, so when virtual reality is coming out now, it really means we need to sort of restart the whole research paradigm again. You know, from scratch with VR because you never know. You know, maybe the fact that it is more immersive, this is this, it will be the critical you know level that you know, you may start to see some some real effects. And we don't know that until we actually start to, you know, collect data. You know, it seems to be like, you know, from the, from the data we have now, it, it does seem to be that our brains, you know, essentially em- employ what you might call, for lack of a better term, kind of a fiction detector. So, in essence, as long as people seem to be aware that what they're viewing is fictional, their emotional reaction to it tends to be, you know, uh, different from when they're seeing something they believe to be, You know, real. So, our brains treat fictional information different than it treats real information. Uh, And that seems to be true for video games or television or music or or, or anything else. It doesn't mean it doesn't have any emotional impact on us. It just means that that emotional impact is different. It tends to be transient, very short lived, you know, and usually doesn't carry over into the real world for the most part. So, I mean, do you really have to? So, there's this concept in learning that's called transfer of learning. And, And that basically says that, generally speaking, that if you play Microsoft Flight simulator that doesn't make you a good pilot Darn it. Ah. you know yeah <laughs> unfortunately you know being good at operation the board game doesn't make you a good surgeon you know so we don't tend to transfer learning very easily from one context to another one um and you see that with desensitization. So I mean you definitely see people get desensitized to media itself by watching a lot of media. The more saw movies you watch, the worse the saw movies need to be uh, having just watched them all in a row <laughs> recently, you know, uh the the more gory they need to be, they get that same sort of stimulation, you know, out of you. But that doesn't seem to transfer very easily, you know, to the real world. And we've actually looked at this in you know some experiments in the lab and kind of looking at people watching different violent television shows and then exposing them to images of real people being hurt or injured. And, you know, watching a violent television show or not beforehand, you know, doesn't seem to influence people's empathy uh, towards real people being injured or hurt when they're watching that in in some film clips. So desensitization probably happens to media itself, but it doesn't seem to jump very easily from fictional media into the real world. So you really have to kind of talk about, you know, constant exposure to something not that just seemed realistic, but that people really thought was real. And and, and even with VR, I, you know, I'm a little bit skeptical because I think, you know, still, even though it's quite intense, it's quite, you know, immersive, I think people are still going to understand that it's fictional. and uh, But you never know. I mean, and that's, that's what research is for is of course, is we need to collect the data and see what we find.
3: But one thing building off of that, that point, too, of, you know, what would the next step bring is when we look at how television or music or video games we actually do tend to see consistency about how all those medias, how we react to them. And so in some way, there's no reason to expect the next step will be much different. So for example, all those medias we find for the most part that there's a short term emotional effect on them, right? So when you see a sad movie, you get sad and things of that sort. But when we look at the real world impact on them, so again, like homicides and violence and so forth, there's a pretty clear pattern where either we find absolutely no effect or no relationship, or we actually find more likely the inverse relationship where there's actually dips in crimes and so forth that are related to all types of violent media. And so in some ways, there's no reason to expect that the next one is going to be fundamentally different than what we found before. But as Chris said, I mean, this is what research is for. We, we, don't, we don't have the crystal bars. So we don't know for sure.
1: I've always kind of found it ironic that these kind of media panics around games that involve military-style shooting, such as Call of Duties, such as Halo never transferred over to games like uh America's Army that is like that its goal is to indoctrinate people into uh military style tactics and strategy and violence and you touch on this a little bit in the book the claim that the military uses violent video games to desensitize uh potential soldiers to killing could you talk about that a little bit i mean it's only a note in that they kind of differentiate between desensitization which doesn't happen and the kind of nuts and bolts uh, strategic and decision-making Kind of cues that, that they're trying to use these these games to train people with. Could you talk about that a little
2: bit? Yeah, I, I could try to answer that a bit. And you know, so I've I've actually had some conversations with military psychologists about some of these these types of issues. And you know, and of course you have to filter this through the obvious caveat of you know, we, you know is the military telling us the truth? And of course you could say, well, I, I you know, I don't know. But you know, sort of taking their responses at, at face value to some extent. I mean, most most military you know, psychologists that I've spoken to have kind of like scoffed at the idea that they're using video games to desensitize soldiers, both because, you know, they generally say that there's no reason why that would work in particularly, and also because I say they really don't want soldiers running around shooting random people anyway, you know, so the idea that they're trying to like desensitize soldiers to murder everybody in sight is, is an idea that they, they tend to re- reject. I mean, they they want soldiers who make good decisions. They want soldiers who make ethical decisions, you know, not who are trigger happy uh, necessarily. So you know, they really kind of scoff at this idea of video games being useful as far as like combat training in the sense of making soldiers more likely to shoot other human beings. You know, they're aware of newspaper headlines and all the kind of problems that would come from that if that if that really worked. So what what they do tend to use video games for uh you know tends to be stuff like team performance you know actually you know trying to see if you can get people to work together well in a simulated environment before they have to try to do it in a real environment you know decision making types of things you know the police will do this with simulators where you get, you get people trying to respond to unambiguous stimuli. You know, is this a scenario where I should shoot or not shoot? You know, so shooting simulators and this kind of stuff you'll see, you know, police officers uh, using. They actually do use video games for things like empathy training. So there actually is a kind of violent video game that, again, is used to kind of put together scenarios in which soldiers can do things that are unethical or are less ethical and you know again it's, it's sort of like a a safe space to kind of try out some of those decisions and see how they you know may or may not go before you have to try these things out you know in in the real world so they you know they they they, they basically use games more for like this kind of like team performance decision making they use them to treat ptsd sometimes but at least you know the feedback that i have gotten from from military psychologists is you know, just kind of like blatantly desensitizing soldiers isn't something they really want anyway, and that they don't really believe that video games is going to be like the thing that would necessarily
3: do that. And it's important to point out, too, just to remind that it's not as if you can use a video game, like first person shooter, you know, Xbox One video game to teach soldiers to be better at combat itself, right? So, you know, I might be able to circle strafe really well, I might understand to pull the left trigger to pull up my sights and the right trigger to shoot but that's not gonna prepare me for actually battle. And so there's no training that's going on with software to teach people to be better shooters that's available to anybody on the street. It's not the transference of learning is too far away.
0: And I assume that most people listening probably wouldn't be shocked to hear that most of the research showing that violent video games do lead to anger or violence has been debunked. But what might be surprising is something one of you alluded to earlier, which is that the opposite appears to be true. It's not just that school shooters don't play violent video games more than their peers. They actually play less because it's par for the course for kids and teenagers to play violent video games in 2017 and has been for some time. And not only does the release of a violent video game game not lead to a crime wave, it actually seems to suppress violence. So could you explain that?
3: Yeah. One of the neat things is this finding about violent media in general. It's not just video games, but it's violent television and violent movies. It's found in different labs and different disciplines, so psychologists, uh, economists, and so forth. They've all found the same thing, that when violent media is really popular, so say when a new Grand Theft Auto is released or when the, a new blockbuster you know, horror movie comes out, we actually see dips in violent crime. So we see decreases in homicide and so forth at these times. So that, that's kind of the facts. That's what that gets found again and again. The question why is a little bit more unclear. And so there's two arguments, basic arguments. One is, is it some kind of catharsis effect? Like it allows us to get our aggression out and you know, by, by playing Grand Theft Auto, I'm no, less likely to commit a crime. That's one argument. Uh, The research for that, maybe, probably not. I think the most likely explanation is kind of boring actually. And it's simply that it keeps people apart that might be potential perpetrators and victims of crimes. So one of the neat things about violent media, if you will, is its biggest audience is adolescent males. And adolescent males actually happen to be the same people who are most likely to commit violent crimes but also most likely to be victims of violent crimes. And so what you do is you have this one form of media that takes these people that are most likely to be victims and perpetrators and takes them off the street essentially and puts them in their living rooms. And so it keeps them apart. And so that might be the potential reason of when, again, games become popular, or when they first come out, that we see decreases in these types of crimes.
1: You you write about uh, Oxford psychologist, Dr. Przbiliski. Hopefully I'm Pronouncing that right, Shabilsky, that's uh, how he okay.
2: pronounces it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: who um who found who's looking at some of the the video game research that's kind of broken through, um, into media reports talking about desensitization and creating more violent kids, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he found that that a lot of those uh, those papers confuse the effects of violence with the effects of frustration. Could you talk a little bit about that? Because that's really interesting.
2: Yeah, I mean, so I mean, his basic argument is to some extent, you know, playing video games, you know, is is generally you know needs congruent. I mean, we play video games because that helps us socialize, feel competent at things, feel autonomous, for instance. But sometimes, of course, we all we've all had experiences, you know, when we just, you know, can't get something to work in a video game or you were at a particular point, like a boss fight where we just can't win. And it gets frustrating. Right. You know, and, and that's not different from and we all know people that, you know, when they lose it, cards, they throw the cards across the room or checkers right. or, or things like that. So, I mean, his argument is that essentially that, you know, just like anything, that there are points in time. When video games can actually frustrate our needs because things just aren't going to go well in, uh, you know, it, it, in that game. And we may react. You know, we're not gonna like murder someone. You know, it's 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 more or less the same thing we get with, you know, someone playing cards and they get angry and they toss the cards. You know, it's not like a major deal kind of a thing. But people might get angry or you know, be a little bit over the top in their emotional reaction and you know, at that point in time. Now now what's interesting about this is kinda of like looking at sort of like the the previous experiments in, in video games, is you know, kind of think about like the typical video game experiment, again, it's having some people play, you know, Grand Theft Auto Five, having other people play something like Tetris for about 15 minutes, you know, so we're really talking about real short exposure to the video games and and many of these people are, they're, they're usually college students and they're usually kind of random, so most of the people who are playing haven't ever played that specific game before, you know, they might have played other games, but typically, you know, they hadn't played that, you know, they haven't played Grand Theft Auto Five, you know, before, so they come in, and they're learning the controls of the game. And, and, and it's been observed that, you know, there, there seems to be a difference, you know, between a lot of these games that, you know, basically Tetris is just easier to learn than is Grand Theft Auto V within a 15 minute time frame. So with some of these games, you know, that are more complicated and they happen to be also the violent games, you give you let them play for 15 minutes. And then you take the controller out of their hand and say they're done. they haven't learned to play yet. I mean they're still getting killed you know left and right, you know by the uh the other characters you know, in in the game, so they're frustrated, sure, but they're frustrated because you only gave them fifteen minutes to play when they were incompetent, not because necessarily there was violent content in that game. So what you know Dr. Shabilski has done in some of his studies is really kind of control for that, you know, and have people play games that are high or low in frustration versus games that are high and low in violent content. Uh, and he 's documented that it really is this sort of frustration whether you 're playing a violent video game or not, getting frustrated in the game can result in you know a relatively minor increase in aggressiveness. but it seems to be that that is a more important component than whether the game happens to be violent or not.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And you devote a chapter to video game addiction. You also devote a chapter to claims that video games help us in some way, whether morally or physically or psychologically. And the nice thing about the book is that you approach both of those claims, I think, with the same level of skepticism. So could you give us a rundown of what we know and what the effects are both positive and in the addiction department?
3: Those are two big separate areas in a way. But yeah, I think the long story short, if you want the short answer, then I'm sure we can go into more detail, is that there's not an epidemic of video game addiction, that people who, who are, quote unquote, addicted to video games, they actually tend to find very little difference in their actual clinical outcomes of how psychologically healthy they are, how social they are, and so forth. Certainly, there are some people that have issues with video games, just like with any activity. the The point is, there's no difference with video games than other activities. And I think in the positive realm, it's also video games. If you play Brain Age, you're not going to become a genius. Ah. But there's also there's also no great harm essentially in it. That they're games, they're video games. And at the end of the day, they're not going to cure cancer, nor are they going to end our world. That they're fun diversions. That you know, as Chris said. Can have important social impacts with, they give us a common language and things of that sort. But in the, the day, they're, they're video games.
0: All right. Well, when games become fully interactive and indistinguishable from real life, we'll have to have you guys back on to see if your research holds up. You can find Chris on Twitter at CJFerguson1111. You can find Patrick at Pat Markey, and you can find their book at bookstores and online booksellers. It's called Moral Combat, Why the War on Violent Video Games is Wrong. I enjoyed it. I learned a lot. Thanks, guys. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank
2: you. Yeah, it's great to be on.
0: All right, that's it for today. Remember to subscribe to the Achievement Oriented feed, rate and review us, and follow us at Achievement Pod. We'll be back next week. Until then, practice safe space sex. Today's episode was brought to you by the Ringer University podcast. It's where you can find teed up hosts Mark Titus and Tate Frazier breaking down every game during March Madness. Subscribe to Ringer University right now and let our college basketball experts be your buddies for the whole tournament.